There have been a lot of great sermons preached throughout history. There will be some preached today somewhere around the world. There will be some great messages. But one stands above the rest, and no, it's not this one. Uh, we're looking at a three-chapter section uh, of the Gospel of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount, which is arguably the greatest message ever taught by the greatest preacher who ever preached, and that is Jesus. And it is most likely the Sermon on the Mount, not a pull out your notes and read it kind of a sermon from Jesus. Uh, it's most likely, consider it kind of a greatest hits of Jesus. These were all different modules, if you will, that he had preached in different places at different times to different audiences, and it was all brought together for this one codified Sermon on the Mount the hot topics of Jesus' early ministry. And Jesus had probably taught these all the time, but Matthew then collected for us the longest sermon recorded by Jesus in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. And we find ourselves right now in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to continue moving through the Sermon on the Mount starting in verse 33 today. But in case you've missed the first couple of weeks from this series, if you look at the back end of chapter 4, you see what the whole message of the Sermon on the Mount really is all about Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And this was radical. This was new. This was something they could not wrap their heads around. And so we're sort of asking and answering the question, what does it mean to live under the authority of our king, who is Jesus, within his kingdom? What does that look like? What does it look like uh, when you live out the Sermon on the Mount? It's really kind of a job description for a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus is our king, we're in his kingdom, and it's a picture of what it looks like to live as a disciple, as one of his followers, as someone who will not just learn from him, but also live for him. And Jesus begins in chapter 5 to lay out what it means to be part of his kingdom. And it is not at all what the people who were listening to him expected. Uh, he starts with nine blessing statements, commonly called the Beatitudes. And they're crazy things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, the gentle, those who are submitted to God, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, those who've been made pure, those who seek peace, and those who endure persecution. These are the ones who are blessed. It's definitely not what people would have expected to hear from their king, from the Messiah, whom they expected to be this strong ruler, uh, a military leader who would deliver them from Roman tyranny and set them free as a nation once again. And this kingdom is de different from anything they could have ever imagined. And so Jesus comes out of the Beatitudes as he like knocks them on their heels and launches into six issues that is this list of negative behaviors. One after another, he hits these lists of negative behaviors, things that the people that were listening to Jesus would commonly use as measurements. Uh, like, I'm not as bad as that guy. Uh, I mean, I do this, but I certainly don't do that. So I'm better than him, and so I think I'm okay. Uh, and there's a repetition, a rhythm to Jesus' teaching as he moves through these six things. He moves through each one of these, and he says this, you have heard it said, and he'll quote the Old Testament, and then, he'll, and then he raises the bar and says, but I say. You have heard it said, raise the bar, but I say again and again and again. Now, one of the things that blew the religious leaders' minds was that Jesus taught, and you'll see this in chapter 7 when we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught with authority. 
which means that when Jesus taught, he did not quote any other sources but himself. Okay, that was what it meant when they said, we don't understand. This is someone who taught with authority. Because normally he wasn't saying, you know, well, you've heard it said, but this rabbi or this philosopher says this. Because that's often what rabbis would do is they would teach the word as they would give their interpretation. They would rely on past precedent, on what others have taught before. Jesus didn't do any of that. He said, no, I have a new way. Here it is. So he taught with authority. And Jesus, you've heard it said, but I say. And every time Jesus gives them something, he elevates the expectation. He raises the bar. Old Testament, don't kill. Okay, that's Exodus 20, top 10 list. Okay, do not kill. Uh, Jesus says, don't even get angry and have hatred in your heart. It's the same thing. The Old Testament, don't commit adultery. Jesus, don't even look at someone else with lust. Again and again, Jesus ups the ante to a really ridiculous level of expectation. It's a crazy high level of expectation. All of this is leading to this final sort of ultimate standard in verse 48. And I'm going to give you a sneak peek to where the message is headed this morning. This is where we're going to land later. It's the end of this section. And what we will read there is the death blow to this whole thing, to the entire model of how the Jewish people felt they needed to be approved by God. And Jesus gives us the standard of entrance into the kingdom of God, apart from faith in the king. And it's very simple, and it's in verse 48. All you have to do is be perfect all the time. That's it. You do that, you're in. Yeah, that's not remotely possible. And yet, that's what Jesus teaches. So these six things are not meant to be encouragements. Jesus is not doing this to like buck people up and say, okay, guys, go get them. No, these are not meant to be encouragements. They're not meant to be try really hard to do well at these things. Uh, they're meant to expose something deep within every one of us. And that is that even if you might look at your negative behaviors and think, well, at least I'm better than that guy. Sorry, Ethan, I keep pointing to you just because it's not like that. <laughs> Jesus raises the bar so high that it is impossibly out of reach. He raises the bar so high that it is impossibly out of reach. It's like a kindergartner trying to dunk on a regulation basketball rim. It's just not going to happen. Not only is it impossible, it's kind of awkward to watch. It's embarrassing. It's never going to happen. And here's why this is significant. That's actually the point of the gospel. The gospel is not a be good gospel. It's not a get yourself cleaned up gospel, get sober gospel. It's a live better gospel. No, it's not. The gospel is about a recognition that I'm actually incapable of producing anything of value to God. Now, some of you are like, man, this is depressing. <laughs> this is the gospel, folks. D don't worry. We'll get somewhere that's going to make you feel better. But you got to feel worse before you feel better. And in my admission of my complete and utter inability, my spiritual bankruptcy, as we talked about from two weeks ago, we finally understand the gospel and just how amazing it really is. So let's take a look at a few of these negative behaviors and the way Jesus asks us to live in these areas. 
In verse 33 now, he talks about making false promises. And he talks in verse 33 about their ancestors. They're the ones who originally heard the Mosaic Law and those who continued to teach it. Matthew 5, 33. You have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. This is a quote from something in the Old Testament from Leviticus 19, which is from where Jesus pulls this. You've heard it said, okay? Uh, from all the way in Leviticus, and it says this in Leviticus 19.12, Do not bring shame on the name of your God by using it to swear falsely. I am the Lord. That's Leviticus 19, verse 12. So swearing falsely in the name of the Lord was a sin. According to the Levitical law, swearing falsely in the name of the Lord was a sin. But if you swore by anything other than that, as long as you kept the Lord out of it, this is the rabbinic tradition, how they interpreted the law. As long as you kept the Lord out of it, you were fine. It would be like this in our culture. If I said, hey, man, I promise. Okay, but do you swear? Dude, I swear. Man, I pinky swear. Okay? I swear on my mother's grave. Okay, now we're serious because when you bring mom into it, it's serious, right? That's the kind of thing that these religious leaders would do. They took that Leviticus passage that says, don't make a false vow. Fulfill your vows to the Lord. And then said, well, as long as you don't make it to the Lord or involve him in the process, you're good. It's like making a vow with your fingers crossed behind your back. Uh, and so swearing falsely kind of became this game in Jewish culture. That if they could get you to agree to your promise, but without having to mention the Lord in any way, then you can actually go back on the promise because God had nothing to do with it. Which is why in verse 34, Jesus says, But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. Do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my own head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. So Jesus is saying it's not about what you swear by. Because if you swear by heaven, it's his throne. If you swear by earth, it's his footstool. If you swear by Jerusalem, it's his city. And even he created the very hair on your head. God is involved in everything. So drop this nonsense of saying, well, I swear by this or that, as if any of those things are somehow separated from a God who is everywhere and in everything. Like here you are supposed, you are as supposed religious leaders. He's talking to these group of Pharisees and Sadducees and, and the Zealots are there as well. And he's talking to these supposed religious leaders and you're playing finger cross games like some kid on a playground at elementary school. You're fully missing the point. In fact, Jesus says in verse 37 then, just a, say a simple yes I will or no I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Which basically means that for a follower of Jesus, living under the authority of our king and a part of his kingdom, there shouldn't be any crossed fingers. We don't go back on our word. If I give you my word, I gave you my word. We could shake hands on it and it's done. I don't have to swear by anything significant because I value my word. And the end of verse 37 says it is of the evil one. Here's the thing. The devil. That seems a little strong, doesn't it? When you swear by something, that's of the devil. Dude, lighten up. Okay, that seems a little over the top to compare false promises to the one Peter tells us is it prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to devour, right? John 10 tells us that Satan comes to steal and kill and destroy. And then Jesus says in John, John 8, for you are the children of your father, the devil, 
and you love to do the evil things he does. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. And now you may be seeing the connection. When he lies, it is consistent with his character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now let's talk about the nature of God and the nature of the devil for a second. God's nature, his character, who he is intrinsically is important. Uh, he is perfect and does perfect things because of his nature. God doesn't have to try to love. Why? Because God is love. God doesn't have to work at the truth because he is truth. But the devil, he speaks from his own nature as well because he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Lying is consistent with his character. And as the people of God... We can't be associated with the father of lies. Meaning if we give our word, if we say yes or no, it should be done. There is no backing off of that. So to live under the rules of our king and his kingdom is to say what we mean, mean what we say, and anything other than that is sin. And that's what he's pointing out to these religious leaders. Y'all are the ones instigating this game of what did you swear by, as if that's what gives it authority or not. He says that's nonsense. It's revealing sin in your heart. So second issue Jesus hits here. He moves on to personal retaliation. This is an interesting verse, one that probably a lot of people who've never been to church, have never read the Bible, can quote. Okay? Verse 38, he says, You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Which again, Jesus is quoting the Old Testament here. It's a quote from Exodus chapter 21. But if there is further injury, the punishment must match the injury, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. I think they've covered it all. So the Old Testament law in Exodus, especially here, did three very specific things when it came to retaliatory offenses. God wanted to put something in place to help people deal with, well, I went after you and I injured you or I did something really bad to you, and now there, you want to get even. So God puts these things in place. How to repay wrongs that are done. First, it provided this sense of justice for the victims of a crime. They knew that if something was done to them, that there would be justice done. Leviticus is going to quote a similar law and say this, anyone who injures another person must be dealt with according to the injury afflicted, a fracture for a fracture, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Whatever anyone does to injure another person must be paid back in kind. So the first thing this law did is it brought a sense of justice to the victims themselves. So you did something to me, then something of equal measure is done to you. The second thing it did is deterred further crime. The law is quoted again in Deuteronomy and says this, then the rest of the people will hear about it and be afraid to do such an evil thing. So it was a deterrent against people taking it further. So this sense of retribution that what you do is done back to you is to deter further crime because as a criminal, you're thinking, man, I, I don't want to pay that price. And so hopefully it deterred them from going down that road. In fact, if you were ever to accuse someone of being a liar or defiling the temple or blaspheming God or doing something to you, you had to have at least two witnesses involved in this. If it was proven that what you were saying was false, Whatever judgment would have come upon the person you falsely accused would now be done to you instead. So it deterred further crime and even uh, deterred accusing someone falsely. The third thing it did is protected the offending party, the person who did the bad thing. It protected them. 
the one who committed the crime. It prevented excessive punishment. Uh, the punishment was given back to you based on what you did. Um, but here's the thing that I think makes this passage so very, very interesting. The offenses and the penalties were decided by the community. It was decided by officials, plural. It was decided by judges, plural. And what was happening in Jesus' time is that the religious leaders were giving permission and empowering people to live out eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth as individuals, not as a community. So if somebody wronged you, you had all the right in the world according to their teaching at this time to do to them what they did to you on your own with no accountability whatsoever. That's a problem. So it's like vigilantes gone bad. It's justice that you just impose upon the people around you. You did that to me, so I do that to you. I mean, just imagine how that would escalate with sinful nature, right? Um, we see that with road rage. I mean, just think back to sometimes somebody did something wrong to you and you thought, oh yeah? Well, you're gonna get yours. Uh, then they wrong you and then you wrong them and back and forth and back and forth and it always gets worse, it always escalates. And what Jesus is suggesting is that these religious leaders have completely missed the point of this. So here's where Jesus takes it next level. Okay, I gave, you, I gave you a little bit of the background there and why that existed to now understand where Jesus flips it. If we're going to live under the authority of the king and his kingdom, Jesus tells us now what that looks like in verse 39. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. So here's the thing. The challenge in this passage has been very misunderstood. The idea of turning the other cheek isn't necessarily literally turning the other cheek, uh, offering the other cheek. Like you hit this one, oh thank you, would you please hit this one as well. That's not what this passage is referred to. It's not really like a uh, thank you sir, may I have another moment. That's not what this is. It's intended to remove vengeful and personal retaliation. Jesus is addressing the problem that existed culturally at this point. It's recognizing then that we are under the care of a God who is in control, sees everything, and is fully capable of making things right. So you're in good hands. You don't have to do anything. He's got it. Does that make sense? And so it removes this idea of personal retaliation. You don't need to go make it right. God will make it right. You don't need to go get vengeance. God will bring whatever judgment he wants when he wants Romans 12 says, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Now, that's not always possible. That's why it says do all that you can. It's not sin if you're not at peace with someone, but if it rests on you, you need to be at peace with somebody else. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. So this is Paul now reiterating what Jesus introduced this concept on the Sermon on the Mount. So we have no need to react vengefully to make something right. That's the main point Jesus is making here. But what's interesting is that historically, we've seen this throughout the years and even today, some people have taken this, what I would argue, a little bit further than the text does. Some have argued that Jesus is calling us here to live a life of full-on pacifism, okay? 
And I'm not trying to pick a fight with a pacifist, which is actually ironic. Um, but I don't, I don't think that's what this text is saying. In verse 39, he talks about if anyone slaps you on the face, give them the other cheek, right? Um, you have to understand what this meant. That was not simply a physical attack. It's not a boxing match here. This is not Mike Tyson with a right cross, and now you say, okay, give me the left as well. Um, in this culture, a slap in the face was a sign of incredible social disrespect and dishonor. This was somebody trying to publicly humiliate someone else. This isn't a fist fight. It's an open-handed diss in public. Does that make sense? This is a social issue. It's a public humiliation, not simply a boxing match. And so Jesus is not necessarily promoting pacifism as a response to a physical attack, at least here. So if someone is breaking into your home, I believe you have a biblical right, and I would argue a responsibility according to passages like Psalm 82, to rescue the poor and helpless, deliver them from the grasp of evil people. You, you need to defend yourself and your family. That's biblical. And some have taken this idea of the hit you on the cheek, give them the other, to say if somebody breaks into your home, well, just pray for them while they're ripping you off. Just pray for them while they hurt your family. That's not what this passage is saying. I'm not promoting violence for the sake of violence, but I'm suggesting that I don't think this passage is teaching that we should sit idly by and watch physical harm come to people that we love or have an opportunity to step in and intervene in some way. In Luke 22, Jesus actually tells the disciples, but now he said, take your money, and a traveler's bag, and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Now, that's a pretty significant exchange in Jesus' time. Get rid of the coat that will keep you warm, which was valuable, very valuable, and get a sword that you could defend yourself with. Jesus is prioritizing that. Now, there's something significant at the same time that we need to understand here, though, in this passage. To live under Jesus' authority... And in his kingdom is to forfeit our rights. Okay? And that's what Jesus is pushing back on. Because everybody there was, my rights, I was wronged, I was offended, I deserve. And these people felt like they had a right. You offended me, so I have a right on my own to pass judgment and retaliate in vengeance because the Bible says so. That's personal pride. And the reality is we forfeit all our personal rights when we put our faith in Christ. To be followers of Jesus, we have no rights because it's not about us any longer. It's all about him. We just, we just sang a song about that. It's all about you, Jesus. There is no personal retaliation. So then what is this passage saying? If you just look at it at surface value, what Jesus is saying here is in verse 40, if you're going to live in the kingdom, be the type of person that instead of seeking personal retaliation, instead give people the very shirt off your back. Bless those around you. Instead, in verse 41, of seeking personal retaliation, be a person that goes the extra mile for others. Instead of, verse 42, being a person who seeks personal retaliation, generously share with anyone as they have need. That's what Jesus did, and so be like him. 1 Peter chapter 2, he did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. I mean, let's be honest. When we're wronged, the nat when we're wronged, not wrong, when we're wronged, the natural reaction is to want to get even. The natural reaction is to want to retaliate in some way. And what this passage is saying is it's really not about getting even because God's got it. 
Instead, when you're wrong, it's about entrusting yourself to the one who judges fairly. So now we come to loving our enemies. Not loving our neighbor. That's dealt with in other places. What about loving our enemies? Which I think is the heart of what is happening here uh, in this passage. Matthew 5.43, you have heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now does that sound a little bit off to you? Does that strike a wrong chord in anyone else in the room? You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It does, just doesn't sound right. And you'll notice that love your neighbor here is in quotes. Okay? Uh, hate your enemy, you will notice, is not in quotes. It's pretty fascinating because what the quotes mean is Jesus is quoting from an Old Testament passage. And if you look in your Bible, you'll probably have a footnote that appears right here that links you to somewhere else so you can see where that is referenced in the Old Testament. But hate your enemy is not in quotes. And there is no footnote because it's not a biblical text that Jesus is quoting here. It's interesting. Um, you know, that whole love, love your neighbor, uh, you'll find it in Leviticus 19.18. It's the passage that Jesus combines with Deuteronomy 6 and the Shema. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like It's called the great commandment, right? We find it all throughout the Gospels. Love God, love people. If you want to reduce how you're supposed to live as a follower of Jesus to two simple sentences, it's love God, love people. Uh, that's the great commandment. The love people part, the love your neighbor, comes from Leviticus 19. So certainly we're called to love our neighbor, but hate your enemy? Where in the world does that come from? It's not found in the Old Testament. You can look all over the place. You will not find it, which is why Jesus didn't quote it. So where did this idea of hating your enemy come from? Remember several weeks ago, we talked about several of the Jewish kind of factions or denominations, if you will, uh, that existed in Jesus' time. You had your Pharisees, you had your Sadducees, you had your Zealots, and then you have this other one called the Essenes. Okay, the Essenes were the Jewish hippies. They're, they were this obscure religious group that said, you know what, we're out. You guys are all corrupt. We're running out to the wilderness. We're going to make our own compound. We're going to live there separated from everybody else. We're going to love our God, study our Bibles, live pure. The world is dying. These people are evil, so we're out. That was the Essenes. And this is pretty interesting. They retreated to the wilderness and they called themselves the sons of light. That was how the Essenes referred to themselves, the sons of light. And they spent their time in intense study of the scriptures, ritual cleansing, regular purification, and pure living. And they thought that uh, they fought against what they called the sons of darkness. Now, who was the sons of darkness? Anyone who was not an Essene. Uh, and they had sort of a rule for their community. Uh, think of it like if you live in a community, you have an HOA with rules, the CCNRs, you know, uh, for you who are, for how you are supposed to live in a community. Like this is the way our neighborhood interacts, or at least is supposed to, all right? We've all experienced HOA rules and how they get enforced. Anyway, they had one for their community, and it was called the Manual of Discipline. The Manual of Discipline is what the Essenes created to govern their community of Jewish hippies. And listen to this. It says, to love the sons of light, each according to his own lot in the counsel of God, and to hate all the sons of darkness, each according to his guilt and the vengeance of God. So these people actually had a rule that they were called as a community to love God and hate everyone else who is outside of their community. And Jesus speaks to this. 
I mean, these people retreated, they fled from the world, and they grew literally to despise everyone else around them. And Jesus flips the script, and he reminds them that people that do not know God are not the enemy. They are captives, enslaved by the devil, in need of the gospel to set them free. So instead of being angry, we ought to feel compassion. Instead of hating them, we ought to love them enough to enter into life with them, as messy as that can get sometimes, that they might see Jesus, which is why Jesus says in verse 44, but I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your father in heaven, for he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. And that simply means God is sovereign over everyone. Okay, the sun rose this morning over the righteous and over the wicked. The rain fell this week over the righteous and the wicked. He is sovereign over everyone, whether they are righteous or wicked. We're not called to hate our enemies. We're called to a much different standard, and that's verse 46. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. Meaning we are to live differently. We're to stand out. We're to love not just those who are like us, but even our enemies. And so then in verse 48, we come to it. This is what everything has been funneling toward. This is the movement that has happened. And we arrive now at verse 48 where he says, but you are to be perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. Boom. What is the requirement of the king for those who wish to live in his kingdom? The answer is simple. Every day, all day, all the time, without fault, be perfect. That's it. That's the only standard that the Bible gives for what it takes to get into the kingdom. If you want to live in God's kingdom, all you have to do is be perfect all the time. And it's crushing. Because there's not a single person who heard the sound of Jesus' voice who was qualified. There's not a single person who can hear my voice right now that is qualified. It has not changed in thousands of years. It's crushing, and it is meant to be crushing. This is intentional, that when you hear those words, you said, well, then who on earth can enter the kingdom of God? I'm doomed. It reminds me of when Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, sees the throne room of a holy and righteous God. He's taken there in, in a vision, or maybe it was reality. We're not really clear whether he was actually brought to heaven or whether it was a vision. And his only response when he enters into this room is this. Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. And this is what Jesus wants you to understand. Jesus is not teaching this in a redemptive way, okay, so that we would learn how to earn our salvation. It's not meant to be a standard of measurement for his listeners. You're not meant to try to get a decent spiritual batting average here. Well, I'm two for six. Hopefully next week I can go three for six. That's not what this passage is. This passage is meant to be a blow and a blow and another blow, and another blow, and then culminating in a knockout in verse 48. So you go, well, what in the world? I'm out. Yes. That's when you're starting to get it. Apart from the grace of God, we are all 
out. And that church is where the gospel begins. In recognizing that you are not a good person. In recognizing that even the good things I might be capable of are like filthy rags before a holy God. And please get this. The Bible is not a self-help book. It's a reality check. And it reminds us that the gospel is not about performing in a certain way and earning the favor of God. It's dying to self and recognizing that in our greatest efforts, God says, no, you are far from being good enough. Depart from me, I never knew you. And he provides for us the only means of righteousness, that we can have his righteousness credited to us, our sin put on Jesus and God sacrificed Jesus to satisfy his own wrath towards sin so that he, by his grace, can have a relationship with us. Because God is love. It's beyond our understanding that the king, the righteous and holy God, would provide that kind of opportunity for you and for me. Sinful creatures, fallen from birth, nothing good in us, that he, by his grace, would call us in our brokenness to him. That's the gospel. Paul talks about this in his letter to Titus. Who's a, Titus is a pastor on the island of Crete. And Paul tells him this. Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy and we hated each other. Now most people at this point can stop and say, yep, I can relate. But when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Whew. The beauty of the gospel is that there is hope for you and me. Apart from the only hope, Jesus Christ dying in our place and him saving us, there is none. That's the only one that matters because the Bible doesn't say that you and I are dying in our sin. It says dead. We're already dead in our sin. There's nothing good in me, but he saved me. And as we finish this section on the Sermon of the Mount, we're reminded that he already provided his grace for us. As we read through this, we can fast forward right to the end of the chapter where Jesus goes to the cross. But here's the thing. Jesus' listeners here on this mountain, they hadn't been to the cross yet. They hadn't seen where this was going. They hadn't witnessed the empty tomb. And as they're listening to this, they're wondering, well, then we are hopeless and we have no way of fixing this. And our sin is complete and we are dead and we have no righteousness that is of any value whatsoever. And they finally are beginning, at least for a moment, to understand their need for a Savior. And I hope we do too. That the beauty of the gospel is in redemption. That God reached out to you while you were still a sinner. The Bible tells us Christ died for Jesus saved us. God being so merciful because of his great love and because he loved us while we were still dead in our sin, he made us alive together with Christ. And I want you to understand the heart and the hope of the gospel. 
Jesus is trying to get his religious listeners here to understand the fact that their religious deeds are not enough because that's what their culture taught them. I just have to be more and more religious and be better and better at what I do. And whether they think they're better than the guy next to them or not, it's not enough. And that they need a savior and he's leading them down this road to point to himself as the only one who can take sin upon himself and provide forgiveness for sin. That unless you are perfect all the time, every day, in every way, you need a savior. And if you look in the mirror, and that's not you, you're not the perfect all the time person, you're in good company. Because Trilogy is a church full of seriously jacked up, broken people. I look around this room, that's what I see. <laughs> because I'm chief among you. All right, I'm right there. And by God's grace, he has saved us. He has set us free. He has redeemed us. And if you've been trying to perform religiously, you've been trying to jump through all the hoops, can I just encourage you to stop? Because it's never going to be enough. And it's exhausting. All you need to do is turn to Jesus because he can make you new. He can help you get cleaned up. He can help put the pieces together in your broken marriage. He can help you in your struggle for what you're looking at on the internet. The things that you know you shouldn't do, but you find yourself doing again and again and again. Because here's the thing, we think we need to fix all those things before God will accept us. But God already has dealt with every issue that you're struggling with right now in your life. Jesus carried it to the cross 2,000 years ago. And that freedom is yours in him. That's the life I want for every one of us. Because there is incredible freedom there. Not freedom to sin, but freedom from sin. There's joy. There is life. And that is the gospel. Let's pray. Praise you. Praise you, Jesus. Before I pray this morning, I just want to ask this morning because this message has just been so central to the gospel and the relationship God wants to have with us and how we are made right before God. And not everyone always has a real clear understanding of what it means to have a right relationship with, with God. It's not through church attendance. It's not through the right things that we do. It's not um, by who we affiliate ourselves with. It's all because of who Jesus is and what he did for us. And I want to pray for any of you this morning who may say, you know what? I'm not sure I really understood that. And I want to have a right relationship with God through Jesus. I want him to forgive me today. I want to begin a new life in Christ not based on my own performance, not based on how hard I can try to please God, but based on what Jesus has already done for me. And so if that's you and you would say, yeah, I, I just want to pray and ask God to, to save me, to forgive me, uh, so I can begin to live in that freedom, with that joy, with that life. And I'll pray for you this morning. And if that's you, would you just lift your hand real quick and I'll pray for you today before we close in prayer. God's working on your heart this morning. Would you Yield to him and say, yeah, it's time. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel, the pure 
his simple good news that even though we are dead in our sin, we can be alive in Jesus. Thank you, God, for our redemption. Thank you for our salvation, that even though we are not capable of anything that matters, God, you make us whole. You make us complete with the righteousness of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that you would, for those of us who have experienced that, for those of us who are walking in that salvation, who are walking in that new life, God, I pray that you would make us, remind us, bring it to the forefront of our thoughts of just how powerful the gospel is. Remind us to be thankful. Remind us uh, to, to live with that deep-set appreciation for what you have done. And forgive us for the times when we forget just how central the gospel is to everything we do and even the very breath that we breathe. And God, I pray that you would go with us this week and let us live gospel-centered lives. That God, as we go into the world, people would see how we live. They would see a transformed life, not because we're trying hard, but because you have redeemed us. They would see that transformed life and they would know that we belong to Jesus. We thank you, God. Go with us. It's in your name we pray. Everybody said.